in this cake, but I think I just saw Santa Claus. I made my family disappear. Have a good trip. Bring me back some surprise. Maybe, uh, maybe, I don't want any, maybe, we've got to find that money. All right, good morning, Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to see the worship center full this morning. I want to welcome everyone who may be a guest with us, especially if you're a first-time guest. Thanks so much for being here. If you are a first-time guest, my name's Chris Philbeck. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Pleasant, and we're so glad that you're here. And I also want to welcome everyone who's joining us online. I want to say a big Merry Christmas to you, and uh, I hope you have a great holiday as well. I'm going to put uh, a single verse of Scripture up on the screen, and we're going to read that in just a minute. But before we do that, um, I want to mention to you that um, next weekend... We are gonna have a special message from our high school pastor, Matt Pineda, and he's gonna share what I know will be a great message about the beginning of the new year and uh, all that that means uh, for us as we think about our lives in the new year. And so I wanna encourage you, I know that's a weekend that uh, can sometimes get lost in your calendar, but I wanna encourage you to make sure that you're here to be a part of that. Uh, I am not gonna be here next weekend because I will be preaching at Claremont Christian Church, which is about to become Impact Claremont Christian Church, the newest church that we're adding to our Impact Church family, and uh, we, that's something that we need to celebrate. And so I want to make sure uh, that you're here next week and that you support Matt, and uh, I know he's going to deliver a great message. I also want to remind you that while this weekend is a little bit different since it's Christmas Eve weekend, and we're just following our regular uh, service schedule, we are going to have, uh, in addition to our 1045 service, one more Christmas Eve service. It'll be tonight at 11 o'clock. That's a tradition that's been in place at Mount Pleasant for many, many years, an 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service. And here's the question that people always ask me, and I want to make sure that you know this. It will not be another message from Christmas at the Movies. It's a completely different service, completely different music, and I have a very, very um, uh, strong Christmas Eve message from Matthew chapter 1 called, What Child Is This? And so if you can join us, I look forward to seeing you tonight at 11 o'clock. All right, we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, and because we have such respect for God's Word, we stand when we do it. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me, and we're going to begin by reading this single verse off the screen from Psalm 119, verse 37. Let me hear your voices. Here we go. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your Word. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. This is the third and final week of our Christmas at the Movies message series. And this weekend, we're featuring the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, uh, I, I figured that would be the case. Most of you have. I first watched this movie with my mother. She loved this movie. Over the years, we watched it multiple times. And so I have some great memories uh, of this movie and my mom every time I hear the title or I, I watch it on television. The movie made its debut in the theaters of America in 1946. The story is set in upstate New York uh, during the first half of the 20th century. It's A Wonderful Life takes place in a fictional town called Bedford Falls during the dramatic economic downturn of the Great Depression followed by the United States entry into World War II. It tells the story of a man named George 
Bailey, who from the time he was just a little boy, had these dreams of living a big, big life. He wanted to go to college. He wanted to build monumental skyscrapers and bridges. He wanted to travel to exotic places. He wanted to have big adventures in his life. But as his life unfolds, his responsibilities to his family and to the community of Bedford Falls keeps him from being able to live out those Dreams. His father was the owner and the operator of something called the Bailey Building and Loan, which served the working class people of Bedford Falls as their only hope of being able to buy a home or to get ahead, financially speaking. It was their only hope because the local bank and almost every other business in Bedford Falls was owned by a man named Mr. Potter, who was a greedy, merciless businessman who wasn't interested in lending money to poor people because he wanted to keep them poor, because as long as they were poor, they had to rent his homes, they had to turn to him for their financial needs. He was basically George Bailey's nemesis throughout the story, and a nemesis is a rival that you can't ever seem to conquer or you can't ever seem to overcome. But in spite of all of that, George has a wonderful family. It includes his wife, Mary, and four healthy children. He's well-loved by the people in the community, and he treats everyone with dignity and respect. He helps out any opportunity that he can. He's just really a good man. But as the movie opens, there are multiple people praying for George Bailey because he's on a bridge, overcome with despair, contemplating ending his life. While all of this is going on, an angel named Clarence is being summoned to go down and try to rescue George, but not before he learns a little bit about George's life and what brought him to this point of despair where he's thinking about taking his own life. And what he learns is that from the time George Bailey was just a boy, his life made a huge impact on his family, on his friends, on his hometown, and pretty much anyone that he ever comes in contact with. This is something he's been doing since he was just a boy, and you see that in this first clip. Poor George. Sit down. Sit down? What do we... If you're going to help a man, you'll want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course well, I... keep your eyes open. See the town? Where? I don't see a thing. Oh, I forgot. You haven't got your wings yet. Now, look, I'll help you out. Concentrate. Begin to see something? Why, yes. This is amazing. If you ever get your wings, you'll see all by yourself. Oh, wonderful. Yay! Okay, Hey, who's that? That's your problem, George Bailey. A boy? That's him when he was 12, back in 1919. Something happens here you'll have to remember later on. Come on, Marty! Let's go, Marty! Come on, Marty! Let's go, Marty! Let's go, Marty! Here comes the scare page. My kid brother, Harry Bailey! I'm not saved his brother's life that day. But he caught a bad cold, which infected his left ear. 
cost him his hearing in that ear. Well, that's just one example of some of the good that was done by George Bailey. A little bit later, there's a scene where he, as a boy still, is working in a local drugstore for a man named Mr. Gower. And one day, Mr. Gower gets a telegram that tells him that his son died suddenly and unexpectedly. And in his grief and sorrow, he begins to drink. And as he begins to drink, he kind of loses his sense of where he's at and what he's doing. And he gets to ready to fill a prescription. And rather than putting the routine medicine in it, he puts pills in the prescription that are actually poisonous. And he gives the prescription to George and says, deliver it. Well, George, he knows what's going on. He saw the telegraph. He understands what's happening. And so he doesn't deliver the prescription. Later in the day, when Mr. Gower gets a phone call asking where the prescription is, he finds George and takes out all of his anger and all of his sorrow and his sadness on George by slapping him in the face repeatedly, repeatedly slapping him on that same left ear that was damaged when he saved his brother from the freezing water, further doing further damage to his inability to hear. Well, yeah, fast forward, and time has come for George to live out his lifelong dream to be a world traveler and to go to college. When he graduated from high school, he waited four years to go to college so that he could work in the building and loan, and he's waiting four years so when his brother Harry graduates from high school, he can take his place at the building and loan, and George can finally go to college. But before he goes to college, his plan is to take a trip to Europe, and he's so excited about it. At one point, he's in a local store buying a suitcase, and the store manager is trying to ask him what kind he wants, and George says, I don't want one, being a suitcase, I don't want one for one night. I want something for a thousand and one nights with plenty of room for labels from Italy and Baghdad and San Marcan. I want a great big one. Later, he goes to Harry's graduation party and he has a fateful meeting with his future wife, Mary. George Bailey, of course, is played by Jimmy Stewart in the movie. And his wife, Mary, is played by a very, very young Donna Reed. And this is... One of the most memorable clips in the movie. We'll watch it together. There's George. Marty! Well, it's all homework. Marty! Do me a favor, will you, George? What's that? Will you remember my kid sister, Mary? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mama wants you, Marty. Mama yeah. wants you. <laughs> Dance with her, will you? Oh, me? Oh, I feel funny enough already with all these kids. Oh, come on, be a sport. Just dance with her one time and you'll give her the thrill of her life. Hey, sis. Oh, go on. And don't be long, Marty. I'm not being wet for I knew some guy came up and tripped me. That's the reason why I came in fourth. If it hadn't have been for that, that race had been a cinch. I tried to find out who it was later, but I couldn't find out. Nobody would ever tell you who, whoever, whoever it was because they'd be scared. Because they know what you kind remember, of a guy George, I am. This is Mary. Well, I'll be seeing you. Well, well, well. Now, to get back to my story, see? <laughs> hey, this is my day. Oh, why don't you stop annoying me? Well, I'm sorry. Hey! Well, hello. Hello. You look at me as if you didn't know me. Well, I don't. You pass me on the street almost every day. Me? Ah, that's a little girl named Mary Hatch. That wasn't you. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, the big Charleston contest. by the judges will remain on the floor. Let's go!
know there's a swimming pool under this floor? And did you know that button behind you causes this floor to open up? And did you further know that George Bailey is dancing right over that crack? I've got the key. seen if Chris Franklin would get with those red slippers and do one of these <laughs> movies, but or moves rather, but I decided against it. Well, <clears throat> from this point on, listen, folks, one, it's just one thing after another that keeps George Bailey from ever being able to leave Bedford Falls and pursue the life of his dreams. After this event, he's walking Mary home from the party and he gets news that his father has had a stroke and then his father dies from the stroke and George has to give up his trip to Europe. He still plans to go to college, but he has to give up his trip to Europe to stay home and help settle affairs for the building and loan. And on the day, he's gonna catch a train to go to college. The trustees are voting on whether or not to keep the building and loan open. And they come to him and they said, Mr. Potter has tried to shut it down. They come to him and they said, the trustees voted down Potter and they wanna keep the building and loan open, but only on the condition that you stay home and you run the building and loan. And so he takes his college money that he saved up for four years and gives it to his younger brother, Harry, who goes to college and becomes an all-American football player. And George stays home and manages the building and loan. Fast forward and four years later, Harry is coming home from college. It's too late for George to go to college now, but not too late for him to travel and see the world and make his fortune because now that Harry's home, he can take his place in the building and loan. But when Harry gets off the train, to everyone's surprise, he introduces them to his new wife. Her father owns a glass factory in Buffalo, and, she, and he's offered Harry a job in research. George asks her, is it a good job? And she says, oh, yes, very. Not much money in the beginning, but a good future, you know. So once again, George makes the decision to stay home and run the building and loan. Things get a little bit better, and George and Mary get married, and they're heading out of town for their honeymoon. They're in a taxi cab, and the taxi driver asks them where they're going. Uh, George is finally getting his chance to get out of town, even if it's for just a short period, and he holds up a big wad of cash, and he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to shoot the works a whole week in New York, a whole week in Bermuda, the highest hotels, the oldest champagne, the richest caviar, the hottest music, and the prettiest wife. But Mr. Potter, for no reason other than his meanness, has created a run on the bank, and they see all the people swarming around the bank trying to get in, and so they stop the cab, and Mary begs him not to get out. But he gets out, and he goes to the building alone, and there are people waiting to get in there because the 
doors are locked. He goes in and he finds out that not only was there a run on the bank, but Mr. Potter has called the loan of the building and loan. And so they've given him all the money that they have and the people are there to get their money, but there's no money to give. And so in the end, what do you think George does? He takes all that money he saved for that honeymoon and he uses it to give the people the money they need to get by until the bank opens again. At the end of the day, they lock the door and he's got $2 left in his hand. Not long after that, World War II breaks out. George can't enlist because he can't hear out of his left ear. And so he does volunteer work at home. But his brother Harry joins the Navy, becomes a pilot, and wins the Medal of Honor for shooting down 15 planes, including two that were going to crash into a transport ship that was filled with soldiers. And on the day Harry is returning to Bedford Falls to a hero's welcome, George's business partner, his Uncle Billy, loses the $8,000 payment that's due at the bank, and it just happens to coincide with the bank examiner showing up at the building and loan to look at the books. And the stress of all of that, on top of the frustration, the years and years of frustration that George has experienced, is too much for him. And so he goes to the local bar and he drinks too much, and he ends up on that bridge contemplating ending his life. But it's at that point his guardian angel named Clarence, of all things, appears and helps turn George around by giving him a very unique opportunity. Let's check out that clip, and then we'll look into the scriptures this morning. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. <laughs> I passed away in it. Oh, Tom Sawyer's drying out too. You should read the new book Mark Twain's writing now. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Oh, where do you come from? Heaven? Right away, quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody. AS2, what, what, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. Cheerio, my good man. Oh, brother. Cheerio, what is that? What martini put in those drinks? Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? 
That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, think, just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wing. Oh, I've got to earn them. And you'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure. How? By letting me help you. Yeah. Only one way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you, do you? Oh, no, no, we don't use money in heaven. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I keep forgetting it. <laughs> Comes in pretty handy down here, Bob. Oh, tut, tut, tut. Uh, <laughs> I found it out a little late. I'm worth more dead than alive. Now, look, you mustn't talk like that. I won't get my wings with that attitude. You just don't know all that you've done. If it hadn't been for you... Yeah, if it hadn't been for me, everybody would be a lot better off. My wife and my kids and my friends. And my... Look, little fellow, why you go off and haunt somebody else? No, you? now you don't understand. I've got my job. Oh, shut up, will you? Oh, this isn't going to be so easy. Yeah, so you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, right? Well, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been bored. You don't have to make all that fuss about it. What'd you say? You've never been born. You don't exist. You haven't a care in the world. No worries, no obligations, no $8,000 to get, no potter looking for you with a sheriff. Say something else in that ear. Sure, you can hear out of it. What's well, a doggone thing? I haven't heard anything out of that ear since I was a kid. Must be that jump in that cold water. Your lips stop bleeding too, George. You know, it's really not that hard to relate to George Bailey as you go through life. In fact, there's a, a moment early on in life that George is talking to his father, and he said to his father, I want to do something big. I want to do something important. The problem for George is that he's looking for the fulfillment of all of that in the wrong places. He's looking in the wrong places because the search for a big and important life doesn't begin in the world. It begins by understanding what is most important in life begins with determining what you value because your values control everything in your life. Your values control the level of success in, or stress in life. Stress is what happens when you don't understand what your values are or your values are in conflict with each other. Your values affect the level of success in life. Show me what your values are and I can probably predict the level of success you're going to have in life, the direction of your life, because every time you're faced with a decision, you're going to run that decision through the uh, 
filter of your values and right values will always lead to right decisions and that will lead to, to success. The values that you have determine or affect your salvation. How many of you remember these words from Jesus who taught us that it's possible to have everything the world has to offer and still be spiritually bankrupt on the inside? In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, he said this. Read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? We need to understand how important our values are. And so we're going to take just a few minutes this morning and be reminded that living a big and an important life is found not by pursuing the things of the world, but by pursuing values that honor God. And to do that, the first step is you've got to make the conscious decision to choose your values. That's something that every one of us has to do. We have to choose our values. Our values come in a variety of different places. They come from our family. They come from our peers. They come from all the different influences that we allow in our lives. But many people, sadly, get their values from the world. And that's really, honestly, I'm not trying to be too hard on him, but that's what you see in the life of George Bailey. He couldn't wait to get out of Bedford Falls and into the world where he could travel, where he could make money, where he could find success, which would help him to feel good about himself. But he had it wrong because the world is not the answer when it comes to our values. In fact, look at these words on the screen from 2 John chapter 2. This is verses 15 through 17. And what's different about this is it's in the message instead of the NIV version of the Bible, which I normally use. But this is what John writes. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. L love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, note these two things, wanting your way, own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear, appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all of its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. What a great and simple passage of Scripture. And that warning is just as true today as it was when John first penned those words because the values of the world haven't changed. In fact, there's, if we go back to the very first part of this message on the screen, you can see the values of the world articulated really clearly in this passage. Uh, the values of the, word, of the world can be identified by three different words, and those words could be pleasure, possessions, <clears throat> and prestige. And you see those things in the first part of uh, that passage that we read, because uh, there's a section where John writes, he says, wanting your own way, that's pleasure. Then he says, wanting everything for yourself, that's possessions. And then he says, wanting, uh, what is, what, uh, excuse me, wanting to appear important, there's prestige. But giving into those values can destroy your life. I hope that's something we all understand. If, if we live our life for the values of the world, then ultimately those values have the power to destroy your life. And I say that because there's lots of biblical examples of that truth. One that comes to my mind this morning is the story, a portion of the story of a man named Lot. We meet him in the Old Testament. And when you get to Genesis chapter 13, you read this interesting story. Now, Lot is actually the nephew of Abraham. And when we first meet Abraham here, he's, his name has not been changed from Abram to Abraham by God, but we'll just call him Abraham. And Abraham and his nephew Lot are traveling together. And they both are pretty wealthy men because they have large herds and they have herdsmen to take care of their animals. 
And they start to have some conflict with each other because they're kind of getting in each other's way and bumping into each other and their servants, their herdmen are kind of bickering with each other. And so basically one day Abraham comes to Lot and says, listen, we need to separate. And he basically says to him, if you go to the right, I'll go to, I'll let you choose. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Genesis 13 says that Lot looked around at all of his options about where he could go and where he could set up uh, his life. And he chose what the Bible calls uh, the whole plain of Jordan. And this is how the whole plain of Jordan is described in Genesis chapter 13. Well watered like the garden of the Lord. So he looked around and he said he saw the best that the world had to offer, at least from his perspective visually. And he said, that's where I'm going to go. And so Abraham, true to his word, went the other way and he spent his life in the land of Canaan. So the Bible goes on to say in Genesis 13 that Lot, now don't miss this, set up his camp on the, on the plain of Jordan, the well-watered plain of Jordan that looked like the garden of the Lord near a city named Sodom. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, that rings a bell in your mind. He chose what looked appealing from the perspective of the world. Now, Lot was already a wealthy man, but in my mind, sometimes my mind gets a little bit wandering when I start reading my Bible, and I start to think about other things that might kind of fill in the blanks there. And I think of Lot moving to the well-watered plains of Jordan and setting up his life there. And I think maybe Lot was, uh, even though he was already a wealthy man because he had all the herds, you know, I think he probably wanted more wealth. And so I think he probably parlayed his new home into this, into this, um, this lucrative real estate career. And he used his name as his marketing tool. And every where you went in the well-watered plains of Jordan, you saw signs that said, lots, lots for sale. <laughs> Who would forget that, right? Or need a lot, just look for lot. Or my personal favorite, you get a lot when you buy a lot from lot. And he was enforcing his name over and over again. Now that's just a silly, stupid thing I said to see if you'd laugh. But anyway, Things didn't go well for him in the well-watered plains of the Jordan because <clears throat> there were four enemy kings who also saw how appealing that part of the country was. And they came in and they conquered the land and they captured everything in the land, including Lot and all of his family and all of his possessions. Abraham was safe in the land of Canaan, but this was the lot of Lot in the well-watered plains of Jordan. Ultimately, Abraham came and rescued him, but it was a bad time for Lot. And I just use him as an illustration of this truth. The world and the things of the world are not the answer for you or me or anyone when it comes to living a big and an important life. That's what George Bailey thought, but he was wrong. Look at these words on the screen from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you what? Say it with me. Think. By the way you think by the way you think. In other words, Paul says, don't be like everyone else. Don't chase the same foolish things that everyone else chases. Be different because God has something better for you than anything the world has to offer. God has something better for you when it comes to choosing what you value the most. You've got to remember that and then choose your values accordingly. Here's the second thing. Once you choose your values, and this might sound a little bit odd, but I'm going to get real practical for a moment. When you, once you choose your values, and you can do this as an individual or you can do this as a family, you need to write down those values. You need to write down your values. Because the choices we make concerning our values need to be really clear in our minds and in the minds of our family. I love these words from Proverbs 14 and verse 8. 
The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. The wisdom of the prudent is to think about what they're doing. And so once you choose your values, write those down so that they can be embedded in your heart and in your mind. We would live more productive lives if we took the time to identify our values, choose our values, and then write them down in a way that we were able to always remember in a way that put them always in the forefront of our hearts and our minds and our lives. And when you choose those values, make sure that they're values that are based on the eternal truths of God's world, or word rather, not the, uh, the truths of the world, which are actually just lies. Choose values that are gonna stand the test of time. You take those, I told you a minute ago, you can define the world's values with three words, pleasure, possessions, and prestige. And if you look at those three words, pleasure, possessions, and prestige, in light of the scriptures, you can see how shallow they are. For example, the word pleasures. I think about these words in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. Uh, the Hebrew writer says, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, note this, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know those words were written about Moses, and they were related to the truth that God had a greater calling on Moses' life than for him just to spend his life as a pampered prince of Egypt. If you know his story, how he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and he had a position of, of, uh, of power and, and, uh, and prominence in the court of Egypt, but he also knew that he was a Hebrew and he came to a point where he had to choose, am I, gonna, am I gonna follow God's plan for my life or I'm gonna follow the pleasures of the world? And so those words were written. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. If you live your life for pleasure, you just need to know that there might be pleasure, there probably will be pleasure, but it will not last. The second word was possessions. And I think about these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1, or chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we should shoot for, godliness with contentment, because that's great gain. And then he, Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, I've told you on so many occasions that there's nothing wrong or sinful about having money or wealth or even the things that money and wealth can buy. But what's important to God is not how much or how little we have. It's our attitude about, how, about what we have and our understanding that everything comes from God and everything is to be used to honor God. And we have to have the right perspective about handling whatever he entrusts to us. And then there's the word prestige. That's the third word that can identify the values of the world. And I think about these words from Jesus, Mark chapter 10 and verse 31. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, and he said, but many who seem to be important now will be the least important then. And those who are considered least here will be the greatest then. And basically he's just saying this, listen, you have two choices. You can try to be a big shot in the world or you can be a big deal in the kingdom of God. So choose. See, these are the values of the world, of the world, possessions. And, um, um, oh gosh, my mind is just not working very well today. Possessions, and, or pleasure rather, and possessions, and then prestige. But all of those are empty. So choose your values. And when you choose your values, here's the encouragement, write them down. You know, I know many of you um, are aware that the, the man who was the pastor here at Mount Pleasant before I came in 2001 recently passed away. Uh, Reggie Epps, his name, had a tremendous ministry here. And I know many of you still uh, have a great relationship with the Epps family because of the impact they had on, uh, on this church and this community during their time here. I actually have known Reggie for over 40 years. We are the same age. 
uh, and have known each other since we were in high school and college. And I know Sharon over the years, Sandy and I have spent a lot of time with them in different settings. And um, I was fully aware of everything that was happening at Mount Pleasant when he had his ministry here. In fact, I used to get a newsletter from Mount Pleasant. In these old days, some of the old timers remember with me, used, churches used to send out newsletters and I used to get it every week and I would read it and see all the incredible things that were happening here. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, his wife, Shara, was here in town visiting some really close friends and she came to church on Saturday night and so we got a chance to talk for a few minutes and she said, I brought you a program from Reggie's celebration of life service. And inside the program, and I knew this was the case, uh, inside the program is written the Epps family values. They took the time to choose their values and then they wrote them down. And they're all based on biblical truth. Their values can be described with these kind of words, faith, family, integrity, wisdom, leadership, health and fitness, excellence, achievement, financial security, education, and fun. Where are you getting your values? What's, what, what is it that's shaping your life? Is it the things of God or the things of the world? The things of God are eternal. The things of the world are not. You want to live a big and important life? Then choose your values and then write them down so you don't forget them. And here's the third thing. Once you choose them, once you write them down, then you gotta live your values. You gotta live them out day by day. A few years ago, George Gallup wrote that after polling all kinds of people, he discovered the number one reason for stress in America, and it's not what you would think. The number one reason for stress in America is not that people don't have enough time. The number one stress in America, or cause of stress in America, is not that people don't have enough money. The number one cause of stress in America is not some kind of relational conflict. You know what they identified it as? They identified it as incongruent values. You know what that means? That means when you have values that you're not living out. When you say, this is my value, but there's nothing in your life that indicates that reality. You say, my faith in God is, is the most important thing in my life, and yet you give no time in your life for living out your faith in God or, or deepening your faith in God. You say, my, my value is, my, is spending time with my family and yet your schedule is so full that you don't spend any time with your family. And so you have incongruent values and you know that something's wrong and something's off and that's the number one cause of stress in America. That's why you have to choose your values. That's why you need to write them down and that's why you need to live them out. I'm gonna put those words from Psalm 119 that we started with up on the screen again and I want you to read them with me again. Let me hear your voices. Here we go. Turn my eyes away from worthless things, preserve my life according to your word. God, I want to live a big and an important life, but I want to do it according to your word in a way that honors you. And I want you to be the one to define what big and important looks like. Help me trust you enough to do that. Listen to, way that, to the way that same verse reads in the Living Bible. It reads like this. Turn me away from wanting any other plan than yours. Revive my heart toward you. After seeing what life would have been like had he never been born, which is what happens next in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and it was a dark part of the movie. He would have never been there to save his brother Harry. His brother Harry would have never grown up to be a Navy pilot who shot down 15 enemy planes and two planes that were headed to crash into a uh, 
a ship carrying a bunch of soldiers. All those soldiers would have died. All those things would have happened. Not, not have been there to save the life of that person that Mr. Gower messed up the prescription for, which would have taken that life and also really destroyed the life of Mr. Gower and on and on and on. George finds him back at that, himself back at that same bridge and he's, this time he's not, he's not looking to die and end his life. He's crying out for the opportunity to live. And when that opportunity comes, he rushes home to discover that even though he never had the opportunity to do all the things that he dreamed of doing, the truth is he really did live, live a big and important life. Let's watch one final clip and then we'll close. Amazing. You have no idea what happened. Well, come on, George. Come on downstairs. Quick, they're right. on their way. All right. Come on. <laughs> come on in here now. Now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there. And don't move. Don't move. What's happening? Wow. Oh, you're coming in. George, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright.
blizzard. Oh, Harry, how about your band for the New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> what would Christmas and beyond <clears throat> look like for you this year if you genuinely embrace the words of Psalm 119 and verse 37? <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. If you embrace that and live that out every day of your life, what would Christmas and beyond look like if you found your values and your value for the rest of your life in the approval of God. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. And I know it's always a little different when we do Christmas at the movies, different from a normal weekend message, but the message is there. The message is there. We, we don't find our, our, our identity and our approval in the things of the world, not in the uh, the pleasures of the world or the possessions of the world or the prestige of the world. We find it in our obedience and our faithfulness to you. And so help us to never forget that. Help us to not get caught living out these, these incongruent values that bring stress into our life where we say one thing about what we believe and our convictions and commitments are and yet we fail to live them out in everyday life. You know the heart of everyone that's here. You know what we're all struggling with uh, in our lives as we come to the end of one year and get ready to begin another one. So I pray that your spirit, who is the spirit of truth, would speak truth into our lives right now about how we can live the kind of life that honors you. That's my prayer for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.